So here we are in this uh, two-part series, hashtag the struggle is real. How many of you got some struggles that you are facing currently right now? Struggles? Okay. The struggle is real. Um, I don't know about you, but we're living it every day. In fact, uh, I'll kind of bring this even close to home. We were just, we had a family meeting and things we had not discussed and brought up in over five years last night began to be talked about and man the struggle was real and it was raw and it was genuine and it was authentic and I believe God is trying to get at the deeper things in our hearts and lives so that he can change and transform us it's not by accident that you face struggles and trials and pain God wants to produce a great result from that we're going to look to the Bible, and in particular, there is um, one particular person that definitely comes to mind when you think of struggles in the Bible. And who's that one person that really comes to mind? Job. Poor Job. Right? How many of you have read Job, and it almost seems depressing, right? It's like you read it, and it's like this guy can't catch a break. One thing after another, after another. So you can turn your Bibles to Job chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 3. You have some uh, a sermon note handouts there. If you did not get a sermon notes, you can raise your hand. The ushers be happy to get you some sermon notes. We got one down here at the bottom. We'll follow along. We put that in the notes there because I may not cover a, a bunch of these things, but we're trying to get it more into notes. So hopefully you take this home and take some time to study, to read that We may not be able to unpack everything there. So Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. There was uh, once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters and owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 5,000 oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants, and he was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. You could comfortably say that Job was set set for life, maybe feeling pretty comfortable with where he was at. He not only had, uh, when you had servants, it was signed, yes, of wealth. He had many servants, not just had a few oxen, but had many. And he's the wealthiest man in the region, yet he's a good man, a righteous man. He feared God, and yet he was fruitful and a good steward of what God put in his hands. I want to encourage you, even as I begin to read this story, what does God even put in your hands right now? Are you being fruitful and a good steward, maybe with what little you feel you have in your hands? Are you being a good steward? Are you being fruitful with that? And I know many times we're always praying for more and more. And like Job, who's this wealthy man, it all started from a little. I pray in whatever capacity or whatever you have in your hands that you'd be found fruitful and faithful yet even though job had all these great possessions and wealth it doesn't matter who you are none of us are exempt from facing struggles and trials and 
pain and hurt. How many of you have, uh, haven't yet faced some grief or struggles and trials? If you haven't, get ready. It is coming. I always tell people it's either you're, you're, uh, have been through a trial and a struggle, you are in one now, or get ready because it's coming. You're in either one of those three places. Title this message today, The Price of a Pearl. Price of a Pearl. The South African Christian writer Alan Patton said this, I have never thought that a Christian would be free of suffering. For the Lord suffered, and I've come to believe that he suffered not to save us from suffering, but to teach us how to bear suffering. For he knew that there is no life without suffering. We talk about hardships and trials and struggles. And Pastor Ben talked last week about loss and the past and problems and stress and sin and shame and anxiety and depression. There is no life devoid of that. If you are a Christian or a believer, Jesus didn't come so that he would take us away from suffering, but because of him and what he did on the cross, that he would see us through it. That's his promise. So if we all face suffering, then what hope do we have? And at least to my first point, that God ultimately has the last say. God has the last say. I don't know what you're facing, what you're going through right now, where it seems like the odds are stacked against you, like you draw the, the short end of the stick, feel like you've been done wrong, there's been injustices, people have said things, did things, whatever you're feeling, you need to know that God has the last say, not the enemy. God has the final word over your life. Satan cannot do anything without God's permission. And I think this may, uh, and as I began to study and look into this, I say, oh, Lord, this is going to go deep. And I don't know if I'm ready to crack this box open on the, 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 theolo the theology of suffering because it's going to dive deep. And, and some people are going to crush and say, what do you mean that God is allowing the suffering? And so kinda, we're going to unpack some of this, and I'll give you a, a few points to hopefully bring some balance here. So Job chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 6 to 12. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. As it's, I'll put a pause there. There are times that the Lord will ask you and I questions, and it's not because he doesn't know. It's kind of a rhetorical question to get you to begin to engage and to ask. So it's not that God doesn't know where Satan came from. I just had to put that in there, okay? Satan answered the Lord, I've been controlling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? Okay, we got, we got to put a pause there, okay? Like, I don't know about you, but how many of you, when you read the Bible, it's kind of like, what in the world did that just say? Are you serious? That's in the Bible? Why would God do that? I don't know about you, but in my mind, I'm like, God, what are you doing? You're setting Job up here. 
Have you noticed my servant Job? He says, he is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan then replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him. See, Satan knows that he couldn't touch Job because God had a wall of protection around him. You need to, I don't think we fully understand and know the sovereignty of God and the omnipotence, his all power that he literally puts a fence and a guard around you and I. And Satan is only allowed to go so far with you and I. And we think for a moment that it's, you know, we're speaking and rebuking the enemy, but maybe God is allowing those things to happen because he's trying to do something in us because God is more concerned about what's happening in us than what's happening to us. So he says, you put a wall of protection around him. You put a wall of protection around his home and around his property. You got to catch this picture. This is why when you pray and believe God, if you have children or if you're married or if you're single, I, I encourage you to begin praying and speaking over yourself and begin prophesying, Lord, put a hedge of protection around me. Right, Lord, Lord, stand guard at my home. The enemy knows how far he can go. And if you let him walk all up, all in it, and not be guarded and hedged and protected about, he'll walk up on it, but only if God allows him to. You got to say those things and begin drawing those lines, though. He says, you've made him prosper in everything that he does. Even Satan begins to recognize that the wealth, the, the success that Job is experiencing is a direct reflection of his relationship with God. Look how rich he is, but reach out and take away everything that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. <laughs> this, this gets me. Verse 12, this is God and his reply. This messes me up. All right, then, you may test him. Satan has to ask permission from God to test Job. In fact, God makes the suggestion to Satan on who to test. Is this messing with anybody this morning? Does this bother anybody today? No, okay. I don't know about you. Maybe this just bothers me. I'm like, God... You mean to tell me that sometimes when, when I'm in the middle of my struggle, maybe it's just a setup, not by the enemy, but maybe you're setting me up, Lord, to see a victory. Maybe you're setting me up to take that next step and that next level like Pastor Ben preached about last week. Maybe that struggle that I'm going through isn't in fact speaking against the enemy, but God, you're allowing him because you're trying to get something in me to go up to that next level that I need to get to. He cannot touch you unless given permission by God. God said, all right, you test them, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with him, everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. Is that messing? I, this is messing me up, okay? Like God is giving him permission to take all his possessions, everything else, because God sees his heart. This is, this is so true, right, that God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but he measures it at the heart level. 
When, when God goes to call the king of Israel and Samuel goes, the prophet, and he asked Jesse, bring forth your sons. And he went from the oldest and the tallest and they were handsome. And Jesse reaches the end and he's like, nope, not you, not you, not you, not you. Not you. Where, is there anybody else in your household? The father wouldn't even call his son David by name. Instead he says, yeah, there's this other boy, this shepherd boy. He's out in the field. How many of you ever been there that uh, people don't even recognize who you are? Don't see your value, your worth. Don't even call you by your name. You're just that other person. But God calls David. He says, bring that boy. In fact, we're going to all stay standing here and wait till he comes. And, and when he comes, that's when Samuel's like, ah, there's something about this boy. There's something in there, something in his heart that because he would risk his own life to save sheep who nobody would see or care about, I can trust him with many and with people's lives. Can God trust you in the secret place? When nobody's looking and nobody's watching, what's your heart's intention? Can God trust you there? God knew that he could trust and test Job, God always has the last say. It doesn't matter whether it looks like it's a setup by other people, like other people plotted and planned and did things to harm you and hurt you. In the end, God has the last say and the last laugh. We give the devil more credit than he deserves. The devil has to ask permission from God. And the devil already knows, he says, I can't even go near his house. What if God is trying to produce in us through the struggle and what I face something of great value and of great worth? Put on there uh, 10 things that you may be saying, Pastor, why in the world would God allow uh, struggles and suffering and pain and trials and, and, and these different 10 different things hopefully will bring some balance to it because it's not just a one cut and, and dry answer. Number one, suffering is the result of mankind's sin and rebellion against God. It wasn't God's original design and plan that we would suffer, but because of our own sinfulness and selfishness, there is suffering in this earth. Second thing is God's chosen people, the Hebrews, suffered when they disobeyed the Mosaic covenant. There is a, a correlation, right? In other words, when you and I do wrong, there is a consequence, when we step outside of the obedience of God and we're on our own, say, God, I don't need you. Listen, I can do it without you. And we go against and break the commands of God. We're no longer fenced around us or covering us above us. And we're out on left on our own. And we may experience suffering. This is why some people who are unsaved will say, God, where were you? And yet they didn't surrender their lives to Christ. See, they want the benefits of being in relationship with Christ, yet not willing to pay the price of coming and spending time in relationship. I want to encourage you, if you are not yet in relationship with Christ, there is many different benefits to it. One is there is a covering over you and I. Number three, people sometimes suffer from wrong choices of other human beings, even though God can use the resulting suffering for good. We see that in the life of Joseph. 
people, maybe you're experiencing uh, uh, trials, struggles, pain right now, not from your own doing, but just outright evil and selfishness by other people. What you need to know is that even in that suffering, just like Joseph, who his jealous brothers threw him in the pit and looked like it was despair and hopelessness and nothing could happen, we see that in the very end, years later, that God could take him from the pit to the palace. Why? Because even when people mean things for harm and cause us suffering, even though God didn't intend for the suffering to happen, he can still turn things around for good. So maybe you're experiencing suffering and you need to trust God. And, and I think, especially in this culture we live in today, we live in this microwave culture where we want things instant and right now. And yet we see things take time. We see if in the story of Elisha, when Elisha prays and, and, and he asks Elijah, give me a double portion of your anointing. It actually took over eight years for things to begin to happen. Are we patient enough through the suffering? God does have a promise and he will hold true to his promise. Number four, suffering brings faithful believers into a deeper understanding and a relationship with him. We can see that in the life of Job. There's nothing that will get you to slow down and rethink things like pain and suffering. How many of you have ever experienced that where it's kind of like, Ah, I got to rethink this. Maybe it's in relationship. Maybe it's in finances. Maybe it's in your job or your career. I don't know what it is, but there's something that happens when suffering and pain and struggle begins to happen. Hopefully it draws you and I closer into a deeper relationship with Christ. Number five, believers suffer because of the jealousy and hatred of certain people who reject the Christian faith. This is true. You see it all around the world. People who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. In truth, I don't think we truly take advantage of the freedoms that we have here. In truth, I think if we're not careful, we become uh, lazy and comfortable and apathetic when there are many people all throughout the world who are greatly persecuted for the cause of Christ. They suffer greatly. And many of those who've paved the way for you and I to even sit here and openly praise and worship and sing and hear the word of God, it was because there were bloodshed that went before us. Men and women of God who greatly suffered. Men who burned at the stake while singing praises to God, burning at the stake. And those around them who lit the men on fire at times would say, what is it about this person that even though we are torturing them and threatening to kill them and light them on fire, they are still singing praises to God because it's something that's within them that has a hold of them that giving them the strength that doesn't come from them. Six, believers suffer as a testament of faith to others. And I begin to draw some of these things out because if we're not careful, we begin praying away our struggles and praying away our sufferings. But maybe God's trying to produce something far greater in you and I. Maybe he's trying to use our tests, and I say this often, use our tests as a testimony. 
7, God allows people to suffer so they will turn to him in repentance and not perish for all of eternity. And I felt like this was important to kind of give you a broad view because I didn't want to just throw one bullet out there on suffering and say it's all lumped together. At times, I don't know about you, but how many of you ever been there and says, God, I don't need you. I'm going to do this on my own. I don't need any help. I got this. I do me, right? I got me. And then we fall into this suffering and pain and a downward spiral from which we cannot return. And all of a sudden we start realizing we're not as strong as we thought we were. At times, God will use suffering to draw people back to his side. And this is why hopefully you don't wait till suffering has to happen to you to surrender. My prayer and hope is that you surrender automatically and say, God, Lord, I don't have to go through the trial to surrender. I'm already yours. Lord, what do you want? I'm here. Go ahead. Take it. Do what you want in me. You begin to realize things go a lot quicker. You learn lessons a lot quicker when you're quicker to surrender to God. Number eight, Christians suffer so they can be conformed more closely to the character of Christ. You and I suffer so that we can be formed, change, transform to become more like Christ. And that word transform comes from the Greek word metamorpho, which, which is where we use our word metamorphosis when it comes to a butterfly changing from a chrysalis, that cocoon, and transforming into a butterfly. But that process of transformation is tearing apart, literally imagine this, this caterpillar and wings that begin to rip out of its back. The transformation process is painful. But if we're going to be transformed into the image of Christ, it will be painful. So maybe God is allowing the sufferings that we're going through so that he can change us and transform us to become more like him. Because if we're walking the easy road, we just keep moving around like little caterpillars. Right? We say, it's all good here eating the leaves like caterpillars. But I want you to know that God's got more for you than just eating the leaves and rolling around like caterpillars. God wants you to begin to spread those wings and begin to fly like a butterfly. Come on now. God wants to change and transform you, and he uses the vehicle of suffering and pain and struggle to spread your wings. Somebody say, I got to spread my wings. If we're going to spread our wings, it's going to be painful. You're going to have wings that rip right outside of your back and, and, as a caterpillar. you going along and it's kind of like, whoop, right? It's kind of like, let me out, right? The transformation process is painful. Don't skip the painful process. God's trying to change and conform you and in the process of taking you higher he's also taking you lower to become more like him to realize that you can't do this life and raise your family and stay married for that longevity and be successful and fruitful without Christ in your life being conformed number nine believers suffer so they can know Christ more fully I don't know about you, but of late I've been feeling suffering and pain. And there, I think I'm like, oh, God, you're so good. 
you just know how to draw me close. Right? How many of you are like, yep, things are good. And when you're in a, a great uh, feasting season and it's like rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, again I say rejoice. And man, things are on the mountaintop and you don't learn to cling close to him. But there's something that happens when you're in the valley. And when you're suffering and when you draw close and, and I find myself saying this even though I say, God, if there's ever a time I needed you, I need you now more than ever. God, I don't want to go a single day, a single week, a single month without you. I needed this, need you this very moment. I need you this very second. I don't want to take the next breath without you. I am desperate for you. I don't want to go anywhere without you. I don't want to make a move without you. I don't want to do something in my family without you, in the church without you, in my business. I don't want to make a decision without you. There's something that happens in suffering that makes us draw closer to Christ. So maybe God is allowing the suffering for you to go through to draw you closer and closer to him. God has the last say. I want you to say that. God has the last saying. One of the greatest Christian philosophers was Augustine, and he said this, God had one son on earth, but never one without suffering. God had one son on earth, but never a son without suffering. I'll, I'll put it in there, never a son and daughter on earth without suffering. You and I will face suffering. God's getting us ready for that next level. Yes, this is heaven here on earth, but one day when we finally see our maker face to face, I'm telling you, it will be worth it all. It will be worth it all. Those of you who feel like you can't sing, I'm imagining one day we'll all get great voices in heaven and we will be singing with the angels, singing that great heavenly chorus. You know, you who maybe only sing in the shower. I don't know. I imagine when we get there, we'll just be singing with the angels. I Hopefully, I think. I, I may, I, my, a dream of mine is always playing an instrument. I've tried over the years. Maybe in heaven when I get there, I'll be able to finally play the guitar in something besides G, C, and D. That's about all I can do on there. God has the final say. Secondly, uh, what we do and learn from Job uh, of what he goes through, his struggles, is that at times struggles can lead to grief. Struggles can lead to grief. Grief must be faced and processed and hopefully we find hope and a better future. Job 1, 13 through 22. <clears throat> One day when Job's uh, uh, sons and daughters were feasting at the older brother's house, a messenger arrived to Job's home and had this news. The oxen were plowing. The donkeys were feeding beside them. The Sabians raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who escaped while he was still speaking. Imagine all of this is going to take place in one day. Let this sink in. Like, in the next moment, as one was finishing, another messenger arrives with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven. It burned up all of our sheep and the shepherds. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. 
While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrives with this news. How many of you have ever had uh, people show up or had a call and you're like, yes? How many of you are like that? People come and you know like they're here to deliver some bad news. How many of you have ever had bad news been delivered before, right? When the phone rings at like 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, it's not something of joy to my heart. you just like, Lord, what's going on, right? Bad news being delivered. Here he is on the third one that begins to happen. While speaking, the third messenger arrived. Three bands of the Chaldeans uh, raiders have stolen all your camels, killed your servants. I'm the only one to escape to tell you. While he's still speaking, another one arrives. Your sons and daughters are feasting in your oldest, brother, uh, oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness, hit the house on all sides. It collapsed. All your children are dead, and I'm the only one to escape. Job stood up and tore his robes in grief. How many of you have ever been at a place, a time in your life where the struggle that you're in begins to turn into this form of grief that can be debilitating where you can't think, you can't see, you can't talk. It leads to depression, it leads to other things and it begins to cripple you. He's starting to begin to feel the weight and it's crippling him, this grief. It's not really just a struggle or a grief. In truth, it's outright trauma. It's outright trauma. And, 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 and I think we don't realize in the midst of our struggles, many of us have experienced grief and trauma in our past that God wants to reach in and deal with the infection that's eating us up from the inside. We try to face the enemies and, and the things that, that attack us from the outside. But I found the longer I get to counsel and talk with people, many times or oftentimes or majority of the times, it's the things that are eating them up from the past. The grief and trauma that has been unresolved from long ago that shows itself up over and over and over again. I want you to think of grief as Layers. Think of grief as layers. Imagine in one day he loses 500 oxen and female donkeys. And then the Sabians come and kill his farmhands. The, the people who he had invested in and showed him how to raise his, his animals, they're dead. That's the second layer. The Sabians come in. Uh, the fire comes in and kills 7,000 sheep and all of his shepherd. It's another layer. And Chaldeans stole 3,000 camels and then kill off his servants. It's another layer of grief. And, and it, powerful wind blows down and kills not just one child but seven sons and three daughters. And it's this another layer of grief. And it's like six, seven layers that begins to be buried. And it gets to the point where even as Job is experiencing these things, he's tearing off his robe, he's grieving. I believe even so you and I are experiencing great grief and trauma that has been unresolved from our past. That God wants to heal us from. Talk about the struggle is real. It's not just struggle what we're facing right now in our present Far too often I see it, what I'm dealing with the present in counseling always has to do almost always with things of the past that's unresolved. Yeah. I don't know what unresolved grief, trauma, 
pain that you've experienced in your past, I want you to know that there is hope, there is healing, there is restoration, and there is a process. I've been through my own grief and trauma and every, there's no two traumas that are the same or grief that's the same. And we all go through it differently and we react differently. But it needs to come to a place where we can come face to face with it. Find truth and healing. Have a safe space to have an open conversation. And hopefully you can get around. This is why we have connect groups where we can get into small groups that maybe you may not be able to have a, a meaningful conversation on a Sunday morning. But the hope is that when you get into a small group where in the prayer time it says, man, I'm really struggling. I faced these things in my past and I need somebody to agree with me, to pray with me. I want healing from my past. This is called compound grief compound grief he loses his career loses his finances he's struck with boils loses his children he's the wealthiest man and now he becomes the poorest person even his spouse turns against him all in a day compound grief it, it, it becomes so bad that you don't know where one grief ends and another grief begins and this is why I, I definitely want to encourage you, if you've ever faced grief and pain, uh, you need somebody to help journey with you. If you need counseling, somebody to talk to or pray to, we're, we're always here as the church. I think there is this stigma also for counselors and Christian counselors that say, I don't need no counselor. What do you think? I messed up? I'm not, I'm not going crazy. Right? Or we're struggling in our marriage. We say, I don't need no counseling. Who needs that? And yet we never do that in any other area or industry, right? Because you don't say this like, oh, heart problems? Ah, oh, man, I, I fix my own heart. I do my own open heart surgery. I don't need no cardiologist, EKG. I do my own little testing of my heart, right? <laughs> you wouldn't see that happening. Or, or when you're, maybe it's a, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe a, uh, facing cancer, right? And, and then they, you got to go see the oncologist. And you never see a person who's like, cancer, die? ah, forget it. I don't even go get testing. I test myself. And yet when it comes to trauma and, and pain and things that affect the mind and the brain, which really the brain begins to control every other part of our body, our natural reaction. There's a reason why when you're in a conversation and your natural reaction is to what? Huh? Huh? What? Like fight, scrap, huh? And it's not necessarily because the current situation. It's unresolved trauma and pain and grief from your past. The snappy, right? The, the, the throw blows and whatever it is. God's trying to dig in deep to your past so that you will find freedom. It's like we are out of prison right the prison door has opened we're walking free but still bound in prison god wants to set you and i free i want to encourage you if if you're facing grief and trauma compound grief and many layers don't be afraid to go find a good christian counselor we'd be happy to refer you to one there are even people in, in our church and people that we know of that we happy to uh, meet we'd be happy to meet with you you need help processing and walking through these things i, I say you got to deal with it on one layer one layer at a time. For some of you, maybe your layers of grief is something like you faced a divorce, a loss of a job, a death. You've 
moved, you've lost something, something has changed or transitioned, it's one layer of grief. And if we don't talk about it and communicate about it, things get just built up over and over again. I begin to even talk with uh, my wife, Leisha, and, and you know how to say apples don't fall too far from the trees. And my father was half Japanese and half Hawaiian, and uh, his form of communication was grunting, right? Like, mm, mm. Hey, Dad, we can go. Mm, mm, right? That was his, not in full, the more he surrendered to Christ, the more I think he was communicating more. But that was his form of communication. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. There was a communication in the home. Right? It wasn't modeled in the home. So without me even realizing, right, Leisha asked me questions and talked to me. And I hear it. It crosses my brain. But I'm like, okay, what do I say? I, I, I'm, I'm processing. If I say this, this might trigger something. If I don't say this, this something else might happen. Maybe I should just not say nothing at all. That might be even better. And she's like, are you listening to me? What? Yes, I'm listening to you. I'm still thinking about my response right now. <laughs> I don't know yet what to say, right? But part of it is, is I, I haven't learned to communicate well. I got to get better at it. I tell her I suck. I'm horrible at communication, right? I just make plans and I do it. I don't check. She said, you ever bothered to check with me? Like, is there just one person in this marriage? You make plans, you do things, and don't you bother to communicate? Shouldn't I find out before things happen instead of after things happen? Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's not you. Okay. So why is this so imperative that we address these things? If we're not careful, our identities become rooted in all these things. Like our identity is rooted in people. Our family becomes our identity. Our friends, our children, our spouse, our possessions, our job, our career becomes our identity. But maybe God is allowing the shifting, the struggles, the pain, the suffering to shift your identity from being in things and people till your identity becomes formed in Christ. This is why people who at times will face things like a job loss and go, man, I didn't even like that job anyway. God, that means you're just opening up a better door for me. Because their identity isn't in their title or their job. Their identity is in Christ. And if God can see them through, he can trust them that he's going to see them through in the next season of their life. This is why we, we find people, and even in counseling, I talk with couples and I says, man, it, don't just be so like leeches on each other, right? Like there's got to be a healthy balance of learning how to be together and being apart. And you can also be from disconnected to overly connected where you begin to suffocate a relationship. And learning the healthy balance in between to say, man, my identity isn't rooted in you. My identity is in Christ. You don't define me, yet we complement one another. Lord, I am complete in you all by myself. I don't need no person to complete me. I don't need no job to complete me. I don't need a car to complete me. I don't need a house to complete me. I don't need possessions to complete me. I don't have to have nice shoes or a nice pair of clothes to complete me. I'm complete complete in you because my identity is in Christ. When we talk about struggles, I see many people who are rocked many times because their identity is rooted in everything else except Christ. 
and they stay longer in the stage three, which is chaos and grief, and, and they can't escape begin moving forward because their hope is in other things except their hope being found in God. I want to encourage you, get your hope anchored in Christ. Everything else will come and go. People will come and go. Even, uh, this is the reality, your spouse may not be here forever. Your, your, the lives of your children are not promised. They may be here today and gone tomorrow. But while we have today, we're going to love and invest and pour into every day, not taking it for granted. But should something come to happen, God, I can trust you in this season that you know what's best. How many of you just saw um, that, that video that just went viral, that guy in the courtroom? And uh, he forgave that, that one woman cop who shot that guy. I think he was a worship leader. She walked into the wrong apartment. She thought it was her apartment, a cop on a late night shift. And she sees this uh, white cop and this black man in the, what she thinks is her apartment. She's like, pulls her gun and starts on. He's like, hey, hey, what are you doing? And he ends up, she ends up shooting him to death, kills him. If you haven't watched, I encourage you to go watch this video. And the, the brother of the worship leader is there on stand and on trial. And he begins talking. And you can just see the love and the forgiveness of God. His, his identity is so rooted and found in Christ. It doesn't mean he doesn't miss his brother. It doesn't mean he's not grieving and mourning the loss. But he knows there is hope beyond this. That his identity is, he says, I forgive you. I don't speak for my whole family. I don't even want you to go to jail. There is somebody who you can find forgiveness from. His name is Jesus. He's like, can I hug you? He, he turns to the, the, the judge and he's like, can I hug her? And you see everybody in there. I'm like, it's just like, you got to watch this video. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so good. The forgiveness of God. He's like, runs up there. He hugs her. And right in that moment, what the enemy would have loved to keep this woman bound and trapped and ensnared and enslaved for the rest of her life. Just like that, the power of forgiveness. Just like that, freedom can happen. Just like that, when we surrender our lives to Christ and he says, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And I can trust you even though I don't like the outcome. I don't like the circumstance. I like the God that I serve. And you're in control and the story's not done yet. Trust the God that you serve. Oswald Chambers says this, no healthy Christian ever chooses suffering. No healthy Christian ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. Think about that for a moment. Jesus chooses God's will, goes to the cross, willingly suffers for you and I. He doesn't willingly choose. We don't choose suffering. Like, if you're like, man, I love suffering, something's wrong with you. I think we need counseling, right? We need help. Because no healthy person would say that, but... Just as Jesus faced suffering, you and I will face struggles and suffering. We're not alone in this. There are stories to remind us that we're not alone in our battles. David was troubled and battled deep despair. Elijah was discouraged and battled depression and weariness and was afraid. Jonah was angry and wanted to run away. Moses grieved over the sin for people. Jeremiah wrestled with loneliness and feelings of defeat and insecurity. Even Jesus himself deeply anguished over what was about to happen. When he's in the garden, he says, 
Father, let this cup pass from me. You ever been there where it's kind of like, God, I don't know how much more I can take of this. I don't know if I could take one more day of this. And I see Jesus in the garden saying, let this cup pass from me. So much so the agony, the anguish, he was beginning to sweat drops of blood. Now that's some deep anguish. You can be assured that in whatever we face, Jesus understands our weakness and our suffering. Our greatest time of temptation and despair. Because he too traveled the road and yet was without sin. Struggles can lead to grief, but there is hope in Christ. Get into a connect group. Talk with somebody about what you're going through. Begin opening and make sure it's in a safe place, right? Don't, don't just open yourself up to the wrong person. Have wisdom and open that up. Find a counselor. Goes with my last point. Choose to respond and not to react. Listen to what Job does. When facing struggles in this life, which is inevitable, what we do learn from Job is how to respond to grief. Job chapter 1 verses 20 to 22, he says this. Then he <clears throat> shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin by blaming God. So what's Job's two responses in grief? He bows and worships and he chooses to praise God in the midst of his grief. I shared this recently too that I truly believe that in this Western culture here in America that we don't truly understand grief. And if we take a biblical approach and when you even study this passage about Job, he sits for seven days in ashes, right? And, and his friends come alongside him. And they don't really say a word. They just mourn, weep with those who weep. There are times people were allowed to take that 30 days and 60 days and, and several months to just weep and mourn. And, and in our culture today, if we're not careful, our language creates culture. And this is the words we say today. Suck it up. Man up. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm like, we don't even have bootstraps. I don't have any boots. I got a problem if I don't got boots. I can't pull myself up. And we say words like this. Toughen up. Just handle. And what we don't realize is if we're not careful, we move into this Western mindset and culture that doesn't allow people to grieve. Don't allow people to hurt don't allow people to go through suffering and pain and tribulation. And instead of coming alongside them and telling them, man up, we can just weep with those who weep. Jesus, when Lazarus is dead and Mary and Martha is there, he comes and Jesus wept. I think we miss it because in our culture today, we don't know how to grieve and mourn. We think we just got to... The responsibilities, the children, the family, the job, the responsibility, the bills. And we don't take time to grieve and mourn. So what happens is we stuff the feelings. We stuff the emotions. We stuff it and bury it deep down inside. And later on, three, five, ten years down the road, things show up in unhealthy ways. Can I encourage you? Take time to grieve. It's okay to cry. 
It's okay to mourn the loss, the death, the transition, the divorce, the change, the loss of job, whatever it is. Take time and, and, and do that. But also like Job, his response was he fell before God and worshipped. He worshipped and praised him. This is how you know his identity was so found in Christ that his response and not reaction, right? Because I don't know about you, but at times if I'm not careful and I move in myself, I tend to react to bad news. I tend to panic and to get anxieties and say, oh gosh, I didn't know that bill was coming. Now how are we going to pay for that bill? We're already behind on other bills, right? And we start to react instead of saying, God, I didn't know that bill was coming, but God, you knew that bill was coming. Help me to be better steward with what I have. Lord, I know you're going to meet the needs as I stay faithful to you. Respond. We all face struggle, but let's choose to respond like it says in John 14, 1, 2, 3. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. This is Jesus saying that. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, I would have told you that where I'm going to prepare a place for you, where everything is ready, and I will come and get you so that you will be with me where I am. In truth, I don't think we truly realize even death. And it's so opposite in the kingdom of God. And we see death only through eyes of loss and eyes of pain when there's so much gain even in death. We're gaining an eternity, gain finally being in the arms of the Savior. Maybe our suffering has a greater purpose. I close with this story that I want to share with you about the struggle of an oyster. An oyster suffers affliction. When the grain of sand gets lodged inside its shell, it suffers struggle and affliction. No matter what they do, they can't get rid of it. The sand gets lodged. It grows irritating to the oyster and the gritty sand becomes so irritating the oyster responds by coating the sand over and over with numerous layers coating the sand does not clear the obstacle but it does comfort the oyster over time the coating of the grain of sand produces something that's costly called a pearl a pearl is the result of an oyster's pain struggle consistently being abrasive and consistently not getting rid of the struggle but covering itself saying God would you give me grace in the struggle God, would you give me strength? And Lord, I need mercy in the struggle, Lord. The answer may not be getting rid of the grain of sand, but Lord, cover me over and over because you're trying to produce something in me. Likewise, God allows the suffering of this world to produce something precious inside our lives. I go back to the title of my message, The Price of a Pearl. What's the price and the cost of a pearl? It takes constantly being under struggle, pain, 
hardship, irritation. If you're there right now, it's because God's trying to form you and fashion you into something more beautiful. Maybe on the outside, you may feel like, man, this situation is ugly and nasty of the outside of an oyster. How many of you know the outside of the oyster is pretty ugly looking? How many of you eat oysters? Okay. We went to Japan, this island, Miyajima. We went with some people from the church and we went over there and they had these oyster beds there. And I was so determined, I yelped. I said, what is the best top oyster restaurant in Japan? And it was on this island and we went there. I'm like, oh man, this is so good. We went there and we popped it open, right? And there was no pearl inside. It was just me. But it's the beginnings of what happens in there. That maybe God is allowing some irritations in your life, some struggles in your life, because he's there. And instead of getting rid of it, God's saying, would you ask me and invite me in to cover you in this season? Would you invite me in to say, I need your strength in this season because God is shaping something priceless and valuable inside of you. And it's not the outside, it's your character. It's your integrity. Beauty does come from within. I've seen people who are uh, beautiful on the outside and pleasing to the eyes, but the inside is like, yeah, I don't know. God wants you beautiful from the inside out. And I believe he's shaping and forming and that price of a pearl, it's pain. So if you're in pain, I think it's because God's making you into a beautiful pearl. Amen. Praise God. Why don't we all stand? <laughs> Close it one last quote. Alan Patton. He wrote, he says, the tragedy is not that things are broken. The tragedy is that things are not mended again. The tragedy isn't that you're in a struggle and that you're broken. The tragedy and hardship for me, even as a pastor, is I see the hope, the future, the potential. And the real tragedy is not that you're broken. The tragedy is that you never get healed. The tragedy is you never get whole. The tragedy is that you never get set free. And I want to encourage you. Price of a pearl, it's pain. Maybe God's allowing this pain in this season to form you and fashion you.